What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Today's guest is Mr. John Zimmerman. He is the father of my previous guest, Joshua Zimmerman. He's also the father of Jeremiah Zimmerman, who has yet to get on the show, but I hope to have him sit down for an interview one day. Hint, hint. I've known John for for a few years now, and him and Paula, his wife, have have really taken Crystal and I in as as part of their family, as they do with with most of the people that they surround themselves with. They they, they show uh, such a strong sense of love and and family that uh, is is recognizable right away, and you can tell is really pure and isn't fake. They're uh, they're very special people. Um, so I was happy to have John come up and, and do the show. He's been collecting my artwork for a while. Actually, the first time we met, I had had the silent comedy come. Actually, I had uh, Joshua and Jeremiah play acoustically at one of my art shows. And since obviously I'm poor, I didn't have money to pay him. I, uh, I gave him this painting that I knew that their father had seen and liked. And so I gave that to him as payment to give to him as as a sort of a birthday present and something to make the show worthwhile as well. And from there blossomed a, a strong bond and relationship um, that continues, uh, which I think is noticeable in the interview. We talk about a number of different topics, including the Johnny Cash Museum, Folsom Prison, the silent comedy, Joaquin Phoenix, domestic abuse, post-traumatic stress, community, street gangs, Vikings, Ben Franklin, Belonging, 501c3 statute, Prop 8 and the Mormons, Fear, Dinosaurs, Liberia, Eastern Philosophy, Shepherd Fairy, Nurturing Creativity, Health and Alternative Medicine, Raw Veganism, Dr. Hal Enzyme Reservoirs, Five Causes of Disease, Outliers, Storytelling, and The Journey. Um, real quick here, uh, just so everybody knows, the show is now up in the iTunes store. So if you go directly to the iTunes store and type in Mike Maxwell Live Free Podcast, uh, the, the podcast will show up there and you can subscribe, listen, or download from there. Also, I'm, I'm currently checking out uh, opportunities for sponsors for the show. Uh, I, I Obviously, the, the show is always free. It takes a, a great deal of, of time and effort and energy to, to put these shows out. And I've actually, I've done 21 in just over three months. And although if it, the show doesn't bring in any income, I'll continue to do it. It doesn't matter that there's other rewards to it. But if the show could uh, actually generate a little bit of dough to pay the bills and help pay for storage on my on my web space my internets, my interwebs, then that would be great. I'm, I'm talking to a couple of different people about seeing if we can't get some sponsors. Also, if listeners feel up to uh, donating, um, you could always send a little dough via PayPal or, you know, throw a check in the mail. If you're at all interested in any of that, you could email me at info at mikemaxwellart.com. And we'll make sure that uh, anyone who does that will get some special goodies back in the mail. Drawings, whatever, art, something silly. So yeah, if, if you feel up to donating and you're, you've are you been enjoying the show, that would be great. If if you don't got anything to donate, that's fine too. Just keep in, 
listening and enjoying the show. Make sure you tell your friends. We have the Facebook fan page that you can go and like and listen to all the shows there if you want. And make sure you go to my website, MikeMaxwellArt.com, so that you can click on the blog and check out some insider information on on the guests who are on the show and uh, see some of the topics that we talk about and catch some of the videos and things that, uh, that make sense to the discussion. So I think now that that gross part is out, um, I will uh, get right to the show. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Mr. John Zimmerman. I hear the train a coming. It's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. And time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps so you do all this in garage band? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Super easy. And I kind of played with it before I, yeah. I got it. Like I tried to make some songs and they're just like using the loops and stuff yeah. that they have, which I kind of had an cool. idea how to use it. And, and that's it's a pretty little, similar. It's a little USB blue mic? Yep. Wow. It's a, it's a, oh, a snowflake or something. Okay. My mom gave me that. I was using the mic right off the, right off off the, the computer thing? and it, was, it worked pretty good. Huh. This is a little cleaner. Right, prisoner. yeah. Um, and it and you can move it around and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I keep it placed <clears> where it's at because um, there's something. There must be something loose in it or something. Because mm. like if uh, that's why I have the thing underneath it because it'll it'll get metallic. I don't uh-huh. know if you've noticed that in any of the shows. Sometimes it'll get like boop, 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 it'll make some weird uh-huh. sounds. And typically, if that like moves around, oh, okay, or if it's close to the the table okay but i can usually catch it in the patterns right you know what i mean so you can watch it yeah so you so johnny cash was your first concert yeah yeah we uh i guess it's my current stepdad uh he was in the army and and we got transferred to uh fort eustis virginia the hampton newport news area and when we moved to virginia i guess johnny cash was playing there at the uh newport news coliseum and my folks were big Johnny Cash fans, so we went, and we were like on the third row, wow. and I was 10, and he walks out, and he looked like a giant, and, you know, flipped his guitar around, hello, I'm Johnny Cash, and it was amazing. So, yeah, that was my first concert ever I went to as a kid. Uh, who was all, who was playing with him? Was it the Tennessee Three or Tennessee Two? You know, when you're you 10, remember, yeah, yeah. yeah you know what I'm saying? Remember, right. And it's so captivated with him that... It was like there was nowhere, no one else in the whole place. Yeah. It was just this guy, you know. It was pretty amazing. I remember, I've, I've been listening to Johnny Cash since I was at least 12 or 13, mm-hmm. prob- and I probably heard it before then. So I think the first the first thing I heard was the uh, live at Folsom, oh, yeah. Folsom Prison, which is so, like, energetic and, yeah. you know, full of emotion and, like, yeah. tension and, like, knowing the story now, but yeah. just only hearing that album and getting that connection to him, right. like, he was an automatic badass, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. playing in prison, like, right. in front of, like, these hardcore... And that was, like, his one of his first, maybe his first show when he came back from a long hiatus of, of being pretty messed up. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I have a good friend of mine that's trying to work on getting the guys in Folsom and San Quentin and some of those oh, legendary prisons. Yeah, so I can see the shirt, you know, Silent Comedy, the prison tour. <laughs> yeah, that would so, be So, yeah, great. we're working on it. In fact, they almost were able to go in with uh, Joaquin Phoenix and the Tennessee Three. 
because after uh, Walk the Line, yeah. we got them into Folsom. And Joaquin was playing Johnny Cash songs. And Waylon Jennings' son, uh, Skeeter, uh-huh. yeah, I think it's Skeeter, uh, was there with him. And so, yeah, so we're working on it. It fell through that time, just a scheduling conflict. But you know. I, uh, I ended up getting one of my portraits of Johnny Cash in the Johnny Cash Museum up in, I guess it's up in, like, middle California somewhere, up past L.A. or okay. something. And it turned out uh, this guy wrote a book about him, and he uh, his kids are actually, Johnny Cash was his kids' godsons. They okay. were his, his godsons or okay. goddaughters or whatever. Some sort of relation to Johnny Cash, personally. And uh, he just happened to see this portrait that I did and bought it, and then put it in his book, and then went and put it in the museum, nice. too. So there's a just a... It's a. It's not like a public museum, uh-huh. I guess, and it's in the Hurt video. Okay. Not the actual portrait, but the museum okay. itself is in that oh, video, cool. that Nine Inch Nails cover very that he cool. does. And uh, so yeah, the painting is, is there song. with all the other me- personal memorabilia and things that he has. Paul and I were hanging out with one of his cousins in Atlanta in November. That <laughs> was sort of wow. unique. Yeah. It was just a random thing that she's a neighbor of my sister, and we were hanging out with her and. Pretty wild, some of the stories she had just of growing up as you know Johnny Cash's cousin. Yeah, yeah. Or I, I, I assume people even from that era and that geographical location have amazing stories. Yeah. Anyway, they know yeah. that Arkansas. Yeah. Like early Americana. Yeah. Type of thing. But um, okay. So let's start the show. Okay. I guess. Let's do it. We got that out of the way. <laughs> Thank you for coming up. I oh, appreciate you're welcome. it. Yeah. Let's talk about your early life a little bit. Where Where do you come from? Well, um. How 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 uh, how you, specific? Where did you grow you, up at? Well, all over. I was a military brat. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom had quite a few significant others, and she was in the military originally. Uh-huh. Uh, my biological dad—that's where they got involved, and her subsequent um, husbands, etc., were all in the military. So I moved all over the place. I mean, I've lived as a kid. Alaska, Illinois, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, you know. Was there a war experience then? Was it... Uh, Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah, we... One of the guys, it was a pretty brutal uh, upbringing. A lot of uh, abuse, a lot of... You know, when you're in that environment, you know, being... You know, I was born in 59. My mom had an affair with a dude that she met who was married in the army. And big scandal kind of a thing. I was born... My grandma raised me pretty much the first three, four years of my life. And then my mom, to have men in her life, married these idiots, abusive guys. Like one of them was so bad, uh, when he went to Nam again, we actually moved and disappeared to get away from him. Oh, wow. You know, bad stuff. And yeah. so, yeah, so the, that whole era of my life um, revolved around all kinds of weird crap. Well, and you know, we could we could sort of look at it now. Like, obviously, I don't know the personal stories, right. but from a perspective, you know, fifty years later, we could look at the the sort of high stress situations that that say your mom or her or significant others at that time were in, mm-hmm. and what kind of stresses that puts on your everyday normal life yeah. now. Let's say maybe some some people were making bad decisions, and we have to sort of take responsibility for right. our own choices. But at the same time, you know, we weren't talking about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, right. especially right. from someone coming back from right. Vietnam and then having to go again. Yeah. You know, and that's not oh, to make was, any excuses. No, for but it was or, a brutal time. I remember one of my stepdads, when he came back, he was in between deployments to Vietnam. And 
uh, my mom sent me up to wake him up for dinner and I went into his room and uh, shook him and he turned around and you know basically kicked me across the room because you know they wake up with you know gunfire and VC coming into their bunks and yeah. it was crazy you know and so you know one of the guys was a violent alcoholic and one of the guys there was a lot of anger and and the the, the consequences and the symptomatic out walking of that anger was you know pretty violent stuff yeah, yeah. and especially for a kid to try to Oh, yeah. Obviously, if adults can't cope with those situations, yeah. putting those stresses obviously get transferred to the yeah. child, and then you're yeah. sort of faced with. Yeah, I remember stuff like that. My first, um, my first Christmas, I can remember. We lived in Fairbanks, Alaska. I was probably four or five, something like that. And I went down as any kid would, you know, like that that age, all geeked up, like five in the morning, <laughs> yeah. and you know there was. A G.I. Joe under the tree, a G.I. Joe tank, because, you know, I was, we were all military, right? right? And I ran upstairs to wake up my mom and her husband because I was so stoked I wanted to get into my stuff. And he just looked at me and he took his foot and he kicked me off the bed and said, get the hell out of here. I'm going to sleep. You know, and I mean, that's the kind of guy I was. I used to have to, as a, as a grade schooler, stand in the kitchen at attention because I smiled or, or did something. And, I mean, really whack stuff. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, once you sort of get yourself out of that environment, you know, you get turn 18, do you get out of there? Yeah. I, I uh, well, I took off half of my senior year. I didn't even live at home. I mean, I just was like, you know, I, I lived a pretty rebellious lifestyle. So, yeah, so. let me let me ask, let's jump back maybe. Did you sort of revolt because of... of like the household traumas, which I yeah. think happens. I yeah. think I did yeah. the same sort of I thing. I did. You know, I started drinking uh, consistently at about 12 and started doing drugs consistently at about 14. And I was sort of on a slow motion suicide path because I, I could probably say I was one of those individuals that really didn't even like life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because the abuse and all of that stuff, it just wears you down. Every yeah. single day from you can remember, somebody in your life was just telling you you're worthless. Yeah. And, you know, after, you know, 15, 16 years of that, you're just like, screw this. And, and then you start to believe it too, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, all of this stuff, it's crazy, you know, from which, the readings you've done. Which, like, for, I think, a lot, like, I've thought about a lot of these types of things before, and... I think a lot of times, like, the drugs and alcohol and stuff ends up becoming, like, a control mechanism mm -hmm. because we're so disconnected from any sort of structural control in our in our everyday life at home where we're supposed to have, you know, a very smooth working system that mm -hmm. makes us, you know, grow up into right. quality individuals, mm -hmm. right, you know? And I think what ends up happening is that those addictions come place after you're you know you're trying to get control by doing these things to yourself right you know it, besides all the self-medicating as well right. to forget about all that yeah. shit but it's also a way to like okay this is me making this choice and i'm doing this and then a lot of those other depression mechanisms that, that take place i think come from that that down spot of of drugs and alcohol yeah you know when you're okay and, you know, I talked to Joshi about this, about, like, the way um, doing a live show, that, like, real energetic high, yeah. that, that energetic emotion that you get from, from the crowd and from playing and whatever the process is. After that, you leave and go home and you're maybe Crash. by yourself yeah. or, 
you know, and then it's like you have to know what those lows are like. And I think a lot of those lows come from the alcohol and drug abuse that is a secondary emotion from that control mechanism. Yeah, exactly. Which, and then uh, the problem is that when we look at it, we look at it like, oh, they're just a drug addict. Right. Or they're just an alcoholic. And don't really focus on what those three steps beforehand, right. what the what yeah. got to that place. Yeah. Which it and you know, it's easier, I think, for us to deal with, you know, people like that. Like mm-hmm. just pretend like it's oh, you're just making some stupid right. choice. Yeah. And it's really not that. Yeah, it's complex. I mean, you know, like you said, we all have to take personal responsibility and you know, I have to take personal responsibility for my actions back then, but it was just it was just a mechanism, a coping mechanism. I mean, and especially at that young age, yeah. your brain isn't really doesn't right. know how to deal with those traumas. Yeah, exactly. We barely know how to deal with it as adults. Like exactly. I said, yeah. and it's like for a child to try to come to grips with all these emotional stresses, yeah. it just doesn't work. Oh no, it's it's you know it's a wonder. I mean, back then I was a classic candidate for suicide, but you know, couldn't go through with that. And I should be like some, you know, psychopathic, you know, I should be in the prison and not getting out instead of going in and coming out. You yeah. know what I mean? Because it was just well, There's uh, something crazy. important to that, right? Yeah. That, um, it's amazing how many people, like particularly in creative fields, um, which I'm familiar with, come from these like sort of fucked up childhoods mm-hmm. and turn out to be these really great people. But it takes a, a strong mind mm-hmm. and somebody who's... Uh, willing to be self-reflective about all these things to be able to rise above that and make those conscious decisions that, okay, I'm, I'm making this choice. I'm not going to let my past create these choices for me. And you know, the, the scary thing is of all the people you see like that, what you just described, there's probably equal to or twice as many of the ones who just couldn't get over the hump, you know, and all this creative talent has, we've lost it, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's brutal, and you know people just don't understand the floor. I mean, I I deal with it all the time with the folks in prison, and the stories have a, a lot of the same threads through the tapestry of their stories. Sure, you know? like young black men from yeah. the inner city. I've talked about this about yeah. Oakland just recently. Yeah. It's like it's that same thing. They feel worthless at home. Mm-hmm. No one's paying attention to them. Their parents are maybe high on crack or right. or alcoholics, and have their own personal issues from growing up in their environments pass these on to these kids yeah. and the kids need attention yeah. and if they're not getting the attention at home they can go get the attention outside right and so and i they, and they need a i mean we're it's like pd you know dogs are made to be pack animals mm-hmm. and and it's just wired in them we we are made for community i you know i really believe that and we're wired for that connection and all of us have different personality traits and some of us are more connected to be with people and some are a little more disconnected but at the core we're wired for community and family is a a sense of family or koinonia is a greek word of having you know that kind of inner relation that that's wired in us and when you don't get that from the natural progression of life you're going to seek it out and so gangs Really, gangs are just a form of an oikos or a, a, a community, a sphere of influence that you find acceptance and belonging and value and worth. And yeah, the, the outcroppings of what happens with gangs, with the violence and you know that those kind of things aren't good at all for society. But the core of the reason that they thrive and exist is just in the, in the DNA of man. You mm-hmm. know? 
And it's that structure that's missing at yeah, home. Yeah, exactly. Which I've talked about just recently with um, with Kinsey Moreland, whose episode just went up yesterday, um, and even some other people about how our expansion um, into the suburbs and our expansion away from the urban center mm-hmm. has diluted that family structure yeah. and and removed a lot of that community-based thing yeah. to where it's like we isolate our, our little families in our big boxes with our yep. fences wrapped around us so that we don't have to deal with our neighbors and and build any real yep. sense of community and it seems like we're go, we're moving back to that yep. not only because of the economic downturn and those sorts of things like you know we hear all these people talking about kids aren't are living with their parents till they're like 30 mm-hmm. and how that's a negative thing based on like uh you know the capitalist idea right. of what you're supposed to do and and how you're supposed to live your life but there is also some good things to it too like although it's it's it seems like it's not a a good choice there are going to be benefits from right and it's that community that communal familiar feeling that yeah we're supposed to stay with our families our packs if you will you know and we by by trying to gain as much as we can and and own as much property as we can we we separate ourselves right and and it creates that that's the one of the problems with capitalism, the way that the Western industrialized society has, you know, sort of messed it up, is that that breeds a, a competitiveness, a disconnection, uh, you know, this kind of warring between people instead of this, uh, you know, coming together kind of a thing. You know, I mean, you you look over in some of the places around the world where we've been, and. You know, that old saying, I think Benjamin Franklin, the guy you're painting there, Mm -hmm. said it. If we don't all hang together, we most assuredly will all hang separately. And, you know, (laughs) people have have worded it like it takes a village to raise a child, all these little sayings. But, you know, in in those kind of cultures, they do need one another. Their survival and existence depends on one another. Here, you know, we just, in, in, you know, industrialized capitalistic America, most people, they, they... they don't need other people. They use other people. Mm-hmm. And they only need them to advance Utilize their... Them. Yeah, exactly. And that sucks. Yeah. You know? Do you think a lot of... Like, we talked about how gang, or how young kids run to gangs. Do you mm-hmm. think a lot of people run to um, religions and church organizations as a way to find that same familiar bond that they're yeah. missing from yeah. their... I think that's the motivation for some people that do that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know... I don't know if you want me to get on a rant about what I think about industrialized Western Christianity, <laughs> but you could probably guess what I think about it. Um, you know, there a lot of people have screwed up some of that, I think, because of the same ideas that we're talking about. But, you know, I've seen people, um, you know, being sort of in that genre for 33 years now. I've seen a lot of people, their motivation coming to it was to belong. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, not altogether that bad you know because as long as they don't pervert it and screw it up like you know the tea party people and those folks do um well i think i think where things get screwed up is how when congregations turn into political parties oh that that pisses me off so much i mean the 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 501c3 statute is very explicit and under the religious part of the 501c3 and they ought to have their tax exempt status jerked and you know it is so wrong i mean i'm not i'm not a political guy in general i have opinions like anyone else right. but when quote unquote christians 
especially get on this political thing like God's ordained a particular political party, just jerk their tax-free status and make them pay taxes on those cathedrals they built and tax the shit out of them. Yeah. I mean, it's like I just know. watched a film about Mormons and Catholics' involvement in the Prop 8 mm -hmm. uh, movement and how they were able to set up sort of subsystems as a way to get their message out there and get their votes the right. way that they wanted the votes to go. Yeah. And they had did it in Hawaii before they did it here in California, mm. which I wasn't familiar with. And I knew that they were kind of involved in right. and how they it was it's really interesting. They have all this like these studies went back and, and found all these uh, documents that were the correspondence yeah. between people and how the Mormons were really in, right. in charge of, of getting that right their their bill passed. Yeah. And it really is. It's like you know that's a political system, and it's wrong. I mean, it's 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 illegal. Let's put it that way. I mean, <laughs> yeah, literally, it's yeah. like I have a friend who's a pastor of a church up in um, Anchorage that I used to be a youth pastor at back in the seventies, and really respect him and what he does and his worldview. And um, he put a thing on his Facebook back in the in the political thing, and I really appreciated his delineation. He he said, as um, a pastor of this particular church, of course, our church has no opinions or stance officially on this race because it was some local race for uh -huh. some local government. He goes, but as just a guy who grew up with this guy and, you know, babysitted his kids and he babysitted my kids and mm -hmm. da, 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 he's a good guy. And as his friend, I support him. And I thought, you know what? I appreciated him putting that delineation because we all have opinions. I have opinions. You have opinions. Sure, sure. Mine don't fly with most of my Christian friends, but that's all right. But they're just my opinions. Yeah. But I don't think, you know, you need to bring some divine validation to any of this crap because it's just a man-made system. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been to 38 countries in the world and I've seen a lot of man-made government systems. This might be one of the top five, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of halfway surviving after, you know, 200 and some years, but it's just a man-made system. Don't, don't assign some kind of divine validation, regardless yeah. of whatever your religious viewpoint is, keep that out of it, you know? Yeah. It seems like there's also, when, when that begins to happen, when a, a congregation becomes a political structure, that they, they get far away as as far away from spirituality as I oh. think you can. Yeah, they get far away, they usually get far away from the actual principles and teachings of Jesus that they pretend that they, you know, are living. I mean... So what is it about these people that... They, obviously, it's easy to follow a leader. Yeah. Which we're all looking for leaders all the time to, yeah. to follow blindly to or towards. What is it about these people that go there and are able to so easily digest all of these types of ideas mm -hmm. and... And principles, and then <clears throat> have them become like their di their divine uh, right spiritual guide. Their sort of dogma. Well, you know, I think if you zoom way back, I think there's a couple issues with it. Uh, number one, this whole country, like in uh, Bowling for Columbine, that Michael Moore movie, he had a little cartoon in there about uh, the fear-driven aspect of this country. This is a very fear-driven culture we're a part of. And fear is a great motivator. I think it's not a good motivator, but it's a great motivator. And uh, people in the especially Western industrialized Christian uh, club have chosen to motivate 
their followers and each other by fear rather than by purpose or being proactive instead of reactive. So you get these people that I think have created this uh, religious ghetto of, you know, they only drink milk from a Christian cow. They, <laughs> yeah. they, they only read stuff they agree with. And they sort of isolate themselves and then they feed each other with their misinformation and their fear. And I don't, I have a lot of friends actually that are in sort of that vibe. And the weird dichotomy of the whole thing is they're not bad people. Some of those yeah. folks are whacked. I, yeah, I'll just yeah. be flat out honest. Some of them are whacked, but some are really good people and they got involved with everything out of a good motivation. But you know, they're, they're, they're skewed in their worldview because, see, most American Christians, for example, have never experienced kingdom spirituality outside of, a, of an industrialized Western mindset. And it's very different when you get out of these cultural trappings, you know. And, it, and I think some of them just get sucked up and they begin to believe that this whole political, right-wing, Republican, capitalistic slant is actually a biblical thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, they actually believe that yeah. with their whole heart. And it's like... It becomes meta-myth, right? Yeah. So it's like they've totally lost track of what the original myths and, and sort exactly. of logic to these things were meant to pass yeah. on. Or that well, we it's, it's like the story, I don't know if you ever heard this, but of the, the uh, newly wed lady who is going to make pot roast for her husband and she's getting everything ready. She cuts the pot roast in half and puts it in the pan and does all this stuff. And her husband goes, wow, that's an interesting way to do that. My mom never did it that way. Why do you cut that in half? Is there some kind of culinary secret to that? And she goes, I don't know. You know, my mom always did that. And, you know, so she called her mom and said, why do we cut the thing? You know, what's the secret to that? She goes, I don't know. My mom always... So she called her mom, which was this lady's grandmother. And the grandmother said, oh, my pot was too small to hold the <laughs> pot roast. So I always had to cut it in half and put it like side by side. Yeah. And so what became uh, one little piece of, of existence all of a sudden morphed into, you know, this is the reality. And so, you know, who knows where all of this, you know, like, right-wing political stuff started but at some point it must have been someone's idea for uh survival and to be able to sustain something but then all of a sudden it, it's taken on this kind of you know divine authority where all of a sudden if you say anything contrary to that and you're in the club it's like you're the antichrist or something yeah, like i literally one of you know somebody i know uh during <laughs> during the election uh, told me the presidential election because they knew I was, you know, uh, advocating Obama. They told me, well, don't you know he's the Antichrist? And I'm like, I thought they were just pulling my leg, you yeah. know, being a smart ass like me. Yeah. And But they were serious. And I said, well, if you as, you know, a Christian really thought Obama was the Antichrist, you would vote for him and you get every single friend you have to vote for him. And they said, what? I said, well... If, if you're a Christian, then you believe that the Bible says at the end of days, the Antichrist will come, mm -hmm. and that's God's will. Yep. The Antichrist is God's will. So you should want God's will. So you need to vote for Obama to be in God's will. If you oh, she got pissed. Yeah. You yeah, know, but for sure. see, they, they, they come up with all this weird circular logic that doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. 
and but it's fear driven, you know. And it's a, it's that same thing. It's like, I, and I have a, a real problem with um, not allowing things to be what they currently are. So because I I know the where a word came from or what a particular historic story actually is, besides what we perceive it as now, I I have a hard time some letting it turn into the current reality. Mm-hmm. Like I get stuck in the past sometimes. Right. And it's that same sort of thing, like, because I know, especially what I'm reading now, like, learning where Christianity has come from, and I'm trying to understand what modern Christianity is now, mm-hmm. and its followers, it's it's so different that, that because I know what it is, or what it was, I have this feeling that what it is isn't real, mm-hmm. and I feel like the people involved in it don't even understand its, its true origins. Mm-hmm. And then, and then a part of me is like, well, anybody could have wrote anything. Like, right. I don't really know what its true right. origins are. And none of us were there. <laughs> I know. You know that's that's so where hard. people always ask me stuff about, you know, what do you think about dinosaurs? I said, I don't know. I wasn't there. Yeah. You know, what, because some of that peripheral argument stuff that so many uh, Western uh, American Christians think are so important to argue with people about, I don't care. Yeah. You know, I, I really don't care. It doesn't matter to me. You know, I don't I don't care what kind of dinosaurs there were, when they were. I don't care. I don't care about a lot of stuff because <laughs> yeah. it just doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I deal with some of the most broken, hurt, disenfranchised people in America. And they never ask me about dinosaurs. <laughs> they never ask me about, you know, the Eucharist. They never ask me. They don't ask me any of that stuff because when they're worried of getting raped in the shower after they leave my class that night, Mm -hmm. they don't really give a damn about dinosaurs. Yeah. That's like I just watched a film about Liberia and like how insane a a lifestyle would be to, to exist in a place like that. Yeah. And how lucky we are that we don't have to worry about getting chased down the street by a crazy fucking junkie kid that is wants to cut your heart out exactly yeah i mean persecution for your average american christian is they were stuck in like rush hour traffic or they had a flat tire let me ask you this um you i know uh you guys spent some time in india Mm -hmm. do you feel like some of i I would assume that you you've you've studied buddhist and and hindu philosophies that you know quite a bit about i would i would assume you know something i know a little being around i I forgot more than i probably which is not hard to do (laughs) um do you feel like some of some maybe some of those philosophies that you've experienced help you uh not like care about some of that shit you know i i think that probably helped i think i'm sort of a little wired anyway to not care about the peripheral nonsense mm-hmm. because you know i've i've come from a hard place i mean i i had a very hard upbringing i've had a lot of terrible things uh, experienced in my life and you know what 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 helps me and and what i align myself to with my worldview it i can't count on peripheral nonsense i can't count on soundbite political rhetoric you know what i mean and then of course being around the world and being in places where you're just watching people drop dead in front of you you know walking up to your waist in uh after a flood in calcutta with human waste floating by you you know it's like all of a sudden does it really matter yeah you know what i mean yeah because it doesn't and you know the thing that most western christians in particular don't realize is christianity is not a western mind thought religion 
It's Eastern. And see, we're very linear. Uh-huh. Eastern thought is very circular. And if they could somehow read the, the red letters in the Bible uh, without Western filters, which for some people is literally impossible because they are saturated in Western thinking, they would be disturbed by uh, some of the actual philosophical concepts that Jesus is talking about because yeah. they're very Eastern and very circular because it's an Eastern-based religion. And there's a lot of contradictions to our Western modern society. Oh, yeah. That. I mean, uh, well, I don't you know, want to get on a political yeah, yeah, ramp, but yeah. I don't think Jesus would be a registered Republican yeah. because most of you know, what he talked about isn't in their platform. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, people equate all of this, get rich at any, or get comfortable at any expense as some kind of godly uh, principle, and it's not. It's the exact opposite. And see, I think um, I think for me, for my opinion, that the majority of the issues within these things that we're talking about is the literalism that gets taken into all these things. like. The idea, like, for me, Jesus didn't even have to exist. For me, I even, I made a Facebook post about it just recently that nobody really referenced, which is funny. Like, it's funny, the Facebook posts that I think are, like, my most important, my most well thought out, or, like, Twitter posts or whatever, are the ones that don't get much attention, which is great. I kind of like it, but I kind of get mad, too. I must not have seen that one, because I definitely would have done something. But, um, for me, Jesus doesn't even have to exist, and for me, it's... The idea is more metaphorical mm. that we are all Jesus and that we're supposed to live this particular lifestyle and, and abide by a number of these philosophies to make a, to become a deity, to become godlike, whatever that means, to be to rise above this sort of structural society that is in place for us. Like I think we're meant to question all these things, which from my point of view, is what the story of Jesus is all about, is mm. questioning all these power structures and saying, no, this isn't right. You know, you're supposed to treat one one another like brothers, not like a, like a business partner that you're trying to fuck right. and, and get some extra money from. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I talk about the way the way we look at, um, like talking about trying to be a businessman and an artist at the same time, where like when I'm looking at art or making art, there's the purity to it. It doesn't have anything to do with commerce. Right. It doesn't have anything to do with um, trying to, you know, raise myself up in in a financial way. But if I were a businessman, and my main goal was to rise up financially, without any of that real purity that I put to art, then my pathway would be totally different. Oh yeah, you know, I would have no problem stabbing somebody in the back if it meant that my business was going to take a step up. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to go stab an artist in the back right. as a way to try to better myself, right. because there there isn't that like cutthroat capitalist idea. I mean, there is competition, right? Of course, to get the space and to do the mm-hmm. things that you want to do, but it's not so much about gaining that financial interest, right, at the expense of others. Yeah, because unfortunately, you know, especially here in like Southern California. It's not a cheap place to live, and you got to pay the rent, and you know you got to do those things. I mean, I, it'd be hard to live that altruistic where you, you just don't. I don't need money, you know, kind of a thing. It'd be nice if theoretically you could do that, but it's not more here. it's more philosophical right. in the mind, like as a way as a, as a mindset. Right. So almost like that sort of Eastern philosophy yeah. to where uh, 
these outside influences aren't as important to me right. as as the way that I keep my inner mm-hmm. self right. uh, balanced. And, and, and then calm. you move forward, and yeah, you you do you know hopefully make a little money on your art to mm-hmm. you know pay for your existence. But like you said, it's the motivation that's different. It's like the guys with the band. You know, people can you know accuse them of being sellouts and this and that. And it's like, well, you know what? Uh, what what's selling out mean? I mean, it's it's about your motives. Yeah. And right. you know, if if you're trying to you know pay the bills and not go to a cubicle nine to five every day, and you have a creative gift and you can leverage that to be able to somehow exist, what's wrong with that? Yeah. You know, if you're if you're stabbing others in the back and you're being a, a jerk about it and you're being a hurtful person, yeah, there's a problem. Yeah. But you know what? There's way more of those guys in business suits sitting in offices right now 30 minutes from us than there are probably band members or artists or musicians you know what i'm saying yeah particularly in this climate where yeah. there isn't there's not a lot of money for yeah. people to continue to do yeah. creative things yeah. because the reality is is that if you want to really pursue a creative field you have to do it all the time yeah you know you have to focus 125 percent of yeah. your effort and emotion and time and physical ability into that thing yeah you do and it i know from personal experience with you know my guys that it, it's grueling you know and the perception is i'm sure people perceive you because of of some notoriety and, and exposure you've had is wow what a what a chill life what a what a you know, blessed life they have. Oh, look at these guys. You know, they're they're selling out the Casbah or whatever. Uh-huh. No, they're working their asses off for nothing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. For and you, you work your ass off, and yeah, you're paying the bills. But it's not like you're some. You you're not Shepherd Fairy. You know. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Or you know, nothing against Shepherd. Hopefully this this loss. He just settled it too. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. hopefully it didn't clean him out too bad. But you know, it's it's not like you know you're some fat cat who's just you know. Um, living off the fat of the land yeah. here. You work your Which, butt off. Even with that example, Shepard Ferry works harder than any person yep. or artist that I've ever seen work. Ever. Oh, yeah. I yeah, I wasn't discouraging Just for reference, him. Yeah. Right. right. But, I mean, the perception people have of Shepard is for this genre of art, you know, not like, who's the dude that does the light paintings that... Uh, uh, Thomas Kincaid. Yeah, yeah. not that genre of art. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he for, just got arrested for DUI just recently. Oh, that's sad. Um, the but for you know Shepard for for sort of this guerrilla genre of art perceived by most people who would even know what it is would be maybe the cherry at the top, and that's what I was talking about. Right? Yeah, totally. And it's like the cherry at the top, and that guy's worked his butt off. And I, you know, I know you. I know a couple other people who actually knew Shepard you know, early on and the the dude, man, he paid his dues and he still is paying his dues. Yeah, that guy works like sixteen hour days. Yeah. I don't know how he does. and then goes out and bombs the city's streets at yeah. night. It's it's pretty intense. Let's move on. What were we yeah, talking you're, about? You're gonna have a lot you're gonna have a lot of editing on this one. Uh, no 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 I, no this is going really good. There's barely any ums or uhs or any of that shit. Um, I just mean all the rabbit trails. Yeah. No, that's how it goes. Like there, there's no real structure to this thing. It's yeah. just about having a, a pretty open ended conversation. But one of the things I wanted to, to mention on that topic was uh, how you say, like, it takes work and work and work and work. Well, a lot of people oftentimes for creative types, they're like, oh, you're so lucky that God blessed you with this talent to do this thing. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I had a little bit of extra talent than maybe some of the other people. 
but I've worked on this thing yeah. for every day for eight hours a day yeah. for my entire life. Yeah. That it's me. It's me right. that's done all this hard work and it's me that's blessed myself with the motivation and the time and the effort to, to be able to do these things. The way I sort of look at it is a seed was planted in your life and depending on a person's worldviews where that seed came from, right. we probably don't have time and neither one of us are smart enough to know exactly because we weren't there. Yeah. But a seed, because you gotta, you got to admit that we all have different deposits in our life mm -hmm. because I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. Okay, so, you know, I, don't, I probably don't have that kind of an artistic thing. I tried once and it, it, was, it was painful. <laughs> but, um, you know, a seed deposited in your life, but then you nurtured it. Right. You know, because you, you garden, you can put a seed out <clears throat> and not nurture it and never have fruit come from it. I remember one time Michael Jordan had somebody say something like that to him. Mm -hmm. And... And he just sort of blew it off because he was being polite. But then one of his teammates came up and started talking to the reporter and said, no, that dude works harder than every guy on this team. Yeah. He's the best on this team. He probably has more raw talent, but he works harder to develop that talent. Yeah. And, and that's what people don't realize. It's that raw talent thing that we just don't quite know how, how it happens. Right. And that's why I look at it because I think in sort of an agricultural mindset with that because it makes most sense to me. It's just like a seed deposited in our life. We all have different seeds. Which I still have. I actually, I, I have the first two paintings that I ever painted in my life, mm. um, which were obviously very, you know, I was five years old. I did two oil paintings, right. which obviously a very early influence that, that I still like I could put myself in that studio, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 25 years ago. Right. No problem. Like right there, like it was yesterday. Yeah. So, like that was clearly one of those seeds. And then also, my mom is a really talented artist too. So I had that in my life mm -hmm. all the time, and that sort of influence. And I actually had a drive to try to kind of compete with her. Mm. Like I, I, I set a bar and right. was like, okay, I need to get to that upper echelon, and then that one, and then that one, and then keep me, and it just kept going. And I got enough rewards from it. I got enough respect and you know, adulation or right. acknowledgement mm -hmm. that was a positive enough experience to allow me to keep doing it at into adulthood. Right. right? Like we all make things, but we stop at right. a certain age when we start doing English and math. Right. And science and stuff. But, you know, if, if there's people who are there to support and, and nurture those seeds, like right. you said, then it's easy to have more people grow into creative. Right. Exactly. Field. Yeah. And that, if if we get to you know um, that's that's a sort of a a thing on my mind about kids like that that the <coughs> seeds are going uh, well let's talk about you, you're like the twelfth member of the silent comedy right yeah exactly <laughs> how many people in that band anyhow but it, from the beginning who knows you uh, you've been a real supportive um, person for that band to mm -hmm. be able to thrive and and become what it has mm -hmm. right I, yeah you know from an outsider's perspective that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, you know, just in in the amount of like emotional and I'm sure some financial support to to get the guys in the right direction. Yeah, and obviously it was, you know, you probably planted that seed in them somehow. You know, they're both really super creative, mm -hmm. uh, talented musicians. Yeah, I I think most of that comes from their mom. <laughs> good, good answer. Good answer. Their looks right for there. sure did. They're they're photogenic <laughs> and don't want to take a picture of me, man. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, we you know. Uh, I had someone actually ask me, you know, why do you do this with the guys? 
uh, are you living vicariously through them or whatever? And I said, no, I've never ever. I used to play horns way back in the day, like, you know, junior high and elementary school and stuff. But I've never had the desire to be a musician. I never, you know, I, don't, I barely ever sing in the, in the shower, you know. But um, I just, one of the seeds in my life is to uh, identify and equip and nurture potential in people. I really think that I really get a, a unique sense of satisfaction when I can help someone else get to where they want to get to. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it helps that two of the guys in the band are my own sons. Well, I've but, even noticed that toward, from you towards me in terms mm -hmm. of supporting my artwork because you yeah. own a number of my pieces, yeah. right? And yeah. I've, I've noticed that since. Yeah. And because I, I really enjoy to do that. Yeah. And, you know, part of me would love to be filthy rich to be able to, uh, to help support and nurture people. You know, because part of the whole gig of it is people being freed up to pursue their potential. And in this culture, that a lot of times just equates to some finances, mm -hmm. you know. And so for the band, you know, I've done my little bit. Uh, that I could to help invest in them and to me it, it's been a good investment yeah. and if silent comedy you know dies a, a slow painful death in a year which I doubt you know because this thing looks like it has legs but so what I've invested in some humans that hopefully now are encouraged to go out and be more productive be producers instead of just consumers mm -hmm. and I feel the same way about Justin you know He's not my biological son, but there's some seeds in that guy that I get stoked to watch them, you know, flourish. Uh -huh. I mean, to see him, that first show at the Cas at Gelada Vera five years ago, and to see him on a stage playing to three or four thousand people and see the growth in that man's life and that, that seed sort of nurtured and blooming. It's like so awesome. And brings value to you, right? It does. It really does. And see, that's what we sort of need. Maybe that's something that's missing here in San Diego. And I don't know, maybe so much in the music scene, but in the art scene, mm -hmm. is those people who are willing to, to give these young people who need yeah. the bit of financial support yeah. to be able to do these things. Like, I equate, which is sort of back to that money thing where I don't need money. Like, I pretend that when people get paintings from me, that they're not buying the painting. People are giving me money as a way to nourish me, nourish my ability to right. create more work in the future, and in turn, I'm giving them a painting. Yeah. So it's not even like a, a commerce issue. It's almost right. like a barter. Yeah. You know, that they're exactly. just giving me some of the, the currency to be able to go buy some right. more paint and some more wood and to build these things. And, and for guys like me that own a couple of your paintings, you know, that's exactly how I feel. But then I get the extra benefit of sitting in my loft. And just about anywhere I turn my head, I have something that uh, reminds me of that relationship, mm -hmm. reminds me of the seeds that I've planted to help they continue to nurture. And I, ju I just get pure enjoyment from certain kinds of things. And art's one of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to live in a loft four times the size of mine that every wall would be covered with art. <laughs> Not because, like I joked with you when you came over uh, around Christmas time about, you know, signing that one thing. And. And you said, where do you want me to sign? I said, I don't know, wherever give me the most on eBay, you know. <laughs> and I'm going to go to my grave owning probably everything I own because 
I have it because I enjoy it. Yeah. And because it's it's an investment in the artistic community. And right. you know, it, and it's a great thing to experience. My my ultimate dream, if you know, the the proverbial if I won the lottery. Uh, and I got two tickets at the liquor store down here, <laughs> just in case, yeah, because it's know. worth two bucks to be in the game. And, uh, you know, I'll probably get struck by lightning before I ever win it. <laughs> but if I won the lottery, uh, my ultimate thing that I would want to do is start an arts factory here in San Diego to teach uh, underprivileged youth arts and art-related sciences. Mm-hmm. So no matter what kind of seed is in their life, whether it's the creative expression of an art form or the technical support of the art form like engineering producing you know uh-huh. mostly music probably would be the art related sciences yeah to be able to have an environment where they could come and they could be taught by guys like you you know imagine having like you the jolsons the cooker you know uh guys from transfer silent comedy hyena you know uh brian from you know uh nervous records coming and donating time to these kids who have no opportunity because there's no programs in schools left anymore. Yeah. If your folks don't have discretionary income, you're not getting music lessons. And there's this sea of potential out there. I bet we could go down in the city heights right now and there will probably be thousands of young people there who have a seed of potential for being producers and not consumers, but they're never going to have that nurtured. Yeah. Unless something externally comes and gives them that opportunity. And what it takes a lot of times for people to do that is to meet with people who are doing these things. Yeah. you gotta, you got to realize that these things are happening. Because it took me getting a job with Shepherd Ferry to understand, oh wow, there's an art world out yeah. here. There's a whole group of people that are doing the same things that I've been doing my whole life. Right. And they're making money from it. Right. They're able to survive off of just doing this thing. Yeah. And don't have to go and... And make somebody else money to survive right. and pay your bills. Or take someone else's money, which is the unfortunate case of many of the young people in the inner city impoverished environment. Right. right. Where, and, you know, I mean, we, we, we had a little taste of that back before the ballpark uh, changed downtown. We used to have a 15,000 square foot warehouse down right by the Wonder Bread factory, which yeah. is a parking lot now. The whole place, it was a seven-day-a-week thing with uh, shows and all kinds of stuff. And it was run by, Jeremiah was the oldest guy, and I think he was 19 or 20 when we started it. Yeah. And the average age running the whole thing from lights to sound to everything was about 16. You know, And, uh, I mean, there's, there's a, a need for that. And to me, that would be a great way to spend the rest of my life is being able to to be a guy that was a catalyst for that kind of um, nurturing, you know. Real quick, I want to talk about uh, health and eating mm-hmm. for a moment. You were a big guy, right? Yeah, I well was. Well overweight? Yeah, I was I was probably my BMI, body mass index, I think was a uh, 43. Uh, clinically obese, I think, if I remember right, it's 36. I mean, I was a big guy, you know. I'm... I'm I'm sort of big boned and big framed and tall. So yeah, you're I like think, seven foot five. Yeah, about seven five, <laughs> uh, six four, and so you know I quote unquote carried it well. Mm-hmm. And I'm the kind of guy that just maybe it's my Norwegian roots, but I just sort of pack it on proportionate. You know what I mean? It is a Viking. Yeah, just a Viking. Viking at heart. And Viking at heart. So yeah, I was probably. 
pushing 270-ish, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, had, I had pursued this doctorate of naturopathy, which is an ND, which is sort of the biological and natural equivalent to an MD. You do all the same coursework as an MD, and then they hit a place where they go to pharmaceuticals and allopathic medicine, and we turn the corner to what we call here in the Western uh, world alternative medicine, mm -hmm. homeopathic, herbal, and all of that. I was pursuing that for a whole gig we were going to do overseas, and about four years into my doctoral studies, I, I thought, oh man, I ought to put this into practice, because I was just after initials after my name to mm -hmm. earn a doctorate, and um, I didn't even care about putting it, I mean, I was a total omnivore, glutton, I mean, it was sad, you know, and so I thought, I'm going to put this into practice principles I'm learning. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm a big fan of learn principles that are accurate, uh, helpful, correct, you know, logical, beneficial, however you want to frame that. Learn the principles and then adjust your procedures accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, I think so many people, the, the problem they get going back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, is they take the, the, the process or the procedures and they canonize it and make that the principle. And you get so whacked and skewed in your life on that. So get down to the raw principles and adjust your procedures accordingly. And so I learned these principles of health and nutrition. And I thought, I need to be healthier. You know, I was about 35 at the time. And I was taking 10 to 12 extra strength Tylenol a day to manage joint pain. And, you know, I couldn't. I was just a mess and getting sick all the time. And so I have a little bit of a radical extreme personality. So one day I went from that to we're going to be 100% raw vegans. And uh, literally just one day we went on, went on a 30-day cleansing fast. It, my poor sons. Uh, the therapy has been very expensive since that day. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, just jumped off the cliff. I don't, clients, when I used to do health consulting, when I had time, I would never suggest they do that, but uh, take more baby steps. But literally, I lost about 70 pounds in three months. Wow. And uh, that was, you know, uh, 17 years ago. And, um, you know, I've, I've kept with <clears throat> the principle of an herbivore lifestyle. I like saying herbivore instead of vegetarian because I... I'm not a moral vegetarian, even though even though I'm abhorred by some of the the mass food industry stuff. It's not a moral issue, right? For, you. for me, the the catalyst, the foundation of it's not a moral issue. At though the I'm part of it, yeah. Though I'm inflamed about some of the immoral stuff going on in the food industry. You know, I've had an herbivore lifestyle, depending on seasons of my life. Of the last 17 years, probably a good six to seven of those have been hardcore, 100% raw. You know, nothing heated over 118 degrees. And about 10 years of it, vegetarian, vegan, depending on what country. Some countries you want to cook stuff to kill stuff, you know, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I've always been an herbivore ever since then. And so it's, it's been a, a really pretty awesome, amazing thing uh, for my life personally. And I think consequently my, my family's life. Mm -hmm. I've read, you know, I've read a lot lately about how we're... We're su really supposed to be vegetarians. Like yeah. we're, we're meant to be digesting raw foods. And, yeah. And just by examining our digestive tract in, in 
relation to mm-hmm. uh, a strict carnivore, yeah. our, our digestive tract is much longer. Oh, yeah. And, and even from an omnivore. I mean, I have a paper. I should send it to you. I'll email it to you. It's a paper that goes through all of our physiology mm-hmm. and, and shows how physiologically, from even our muscle, muscle structure of our jaws, even our, our claws, we call them fingernails, uh-huh. even, you know, even, a, I mean, stuff people wouldn't even think of is, is designed as an herbivore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our bodies are so incredibly complex and uh, tolerant that we can be, there's, there's, I've never met a human who's a carnivore. I've, yeah. I've met gazillions of omnivores, right. you know, but even if we put the wrong fuel in our body that wasn't, our body wasn't designed for and isn't, you know, uh, wired for, it's so incredibly complex and efficient that it will tolerate it, but it's sort of like this. This is how I explain it in in my lectures that I do. It's like, let's say I give you $100,000 to put in the bank and say, Mike, this bank account is all you can live on. And every month I'm gonna deposit 2,500 bucks into that bank account that started with 100,000. And so we start doing that. But unfortunately, it costs you about 2,800 bucks a month to live. So every month you're deficit spending. Yeah. But at first it's it's you don't even know. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean technically you know, but it doesn't affect you. But at some point, I'm not a math guy, but at some point you start bouncing checks. Yeah, that hundred thousand runs out of it. Exactly. And so that's how it is with uh, the reason the raw food concept is so powerful is because of the enzyme nutrition factor that we start life with an enzyme bank account. Uh, Dr. Howell, one of the, the leading uh, proponents of this back in the day, uh, said it was like an enzyme reservoir. And then our body creates certain enzymes. Mm-hmm. Our pancreas does, etc., etc. And so there's deposits being made into that bank account. So when you eat uh, any, even vegetables that are absent of enzymes, like been cooked over 118 degrees, you are deficit spending. And depending on how you eat, if, if you know, you're eating a lot of acid-forming foods like dairy and flesh and stuff like that, you're making huge uh, withdrawals without making hardly any deposits. Right. And at some point, you're going to start deficit spending. And most people traditionally started deficit spending about their mid-40s to mid-50s. And that's that middle-aged kind of stuff that we've put up with in the Western society as normal life. Yeah. I mean, I have friends. I'm, I'm only 52. And I have friends that I graduated high school with that are on four, five, six medications. That's sad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and no, no blame on them, but the deficit spending, the dominoes are falling. Yeah. You know? There's, there's five causes of disease. Every disease, every ism, itis, everything. Only five causes. There's uh, hereditary issues, something that got passed down, you know, in our DNA. There's uh, congenital issues. That's something that we were born with but wasn't passed down in our food chain, so to speak, like mm-hmm. a congenital heart defect. Babies born with a hole in their heart, but no one ever in their families had a hole in their yeah. heart. There's organic damage. Something actually has happened to you externally. Um, I've had some severe car accidents and had five surgeries on my knees. I have no meniscus or cartilage, and you know it, it grinds bone on bone every time my legs move. 
That's or what even family. like a mother smoking, right? Or mother smoking, yeah. I mean, good night. My mom smoked when I was in the womb. It's, it's amazing I'm not dead from lung cancer yet, you know, because I was raised in a purple haze, yeah. in both sides of yeah. the purple haze. And then there's a nutritional deficiency, which doesn't mean malnourished. It means not getting the proper uh, nutrients that you need. And then there's uh, toxicity. And so of those five, and toxicity can be internal or external. Mm -hmm. Of those five causes of disease, 5% of every ism and itis are from the first three. Things that really we don't have control over. Yeah. 95 are from the last two that we have some control over. And so what I try to teach people is the principles of building health so that you take control over what you have control. I mean, like, I live downtown San Diego. I don't even own a vehicle. I walk everywhere and everything. So I'm, I'm getting, you know, car exhaust blasted in me. That's environmental toxicity. I have control over that if I choose to go live out in the country. But I live downtown by choice. And so I need to mitigate that or, or somehow can manage that. And so I sometimes go overboard maybe to say, I want to make the best deposits in my life because I have this cause of disease that's just blasted me every single moment of my life, you know? And like, for example, I think I have a hereditary predisposition toward being big. I mean, my grandma was as tall as she was wide. I mean, (laughs) my grandma and grandpa came over on the boat from Norway. Uh I mean, they were real deal Vikings. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, most of the folks in my family struggle with, you know, height, weight, proportionate kind of stuff. And I I literally could look at a piece of bread and probably gain three pounds. But even though that's a predisposition, I've learned principles Mm -hmm. and adjusted my procedures to even manage that predisposition. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And And it's almost like back to that analogy of like deposits in the bank. It's when when those checks start bouncing that we start to get these debilitative diseases exactly right? yeah is as when we run out and yeah. i and often i talk about this a lot and i'm an omnivore like i mm-hmm. enjoy a carne asada burrito just like anybody i gotta go now <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, what i say is is sort of that same principle is that okay it's okay if you want to go have yeah. a carne asada burrito or if you want to have a fucking barbecue chicken sandwich mm-hmm. you know that's fine but just make sure you get those raw vegetables exactly. and, and raw fruits and right. water into your system exactly if you, you at least keep up your payments exactly you know exactly and that's what i try when i used to do you know uh, corporate lectures and private consultations when i had time that's what i would teach people is learn the principles and start adjusting your procedures take some baby steps you know if you're eating meat three meals a day Go down to one meal a day. Yeah. Get plateau for 90 to 180 days. And then see if you want to make some more adjustments yeah. to your procedure. Because you, it, it's amazing the type of changes you notice almost immediately. Exactly. And ideally, yeah, we should live at as herbivores. But some people, for a lot of different reasons, aren't and don't want to. And that's fine. Yeah. Just learn principles of health and, and manage your... Your cash flow. Right. Uh, you know, it's the difference between, like, you, for instance, uh, enjoy a fine wine every now and then. It's the difference between being able to just drink a couple glasses of wine and have four bottles in your mouth chugging them down. Exactly. You know, exactly. One is bad, and, and 
you know, moderation is good. Yeah. But when we come up in this culture of get whatever you can, right? Whenever you can, yeah. Then that's when we start to run into problems. And, oh, yeah. and for me, maybe you know, just thinking of off off the top of my head now, like I wonder if some of like those old genetics still come through in like like for instance, like something that get, gets passed on from our relatives who were in the Great Depression, where yeah. it's like. There might not be food tomorrow. You better eat Stock up all up. that food. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and I mean, I talked about that in terms of exercise and how some, like my exercise regime last year, feathered off or tethered off at the at uh, right before winter, just into fall, and it was almost seemed like I was blaming myself for being a little bit lazy. Right. But maybe some of those genetics came through and were like, "Hey, winter's coming up. You need right. to hold some of your energy storage. Yeah, exactly. Slow it down a little yeah, bit, guy. Yeah. And I think a lot of it. Josh is reading a fascinating book right now. He's telling me about it. I want to read it. I think it's called uh, Outliners. And, yeah. And it's a, Outliers. Outliers. Okay. Yeah. And and it's about that. About some of the ancestral kind of. I'll just use DNA, even though that's not the accurate term, but yeah. that's in my mind. That's how it clicks. Some of the ancestral deposits in our life from the people group we may have originally come from that play a lot in uh, our behavior today. And mm-hmm. it's fascinating, you know, and it, I, I can't wait to read that book when he's done with it. Yeah, it's, it's, I've read it. It's, okay. uh, I've read a few of, uh, it's Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. I've read a few of his books. And, and that one in particular was, was real, like they yeah. talk about um, the uh, Chinese ancestry in the rice mm-hmm. field patties. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and also um, Jewish uh, businessmen mm-hmm. as well, and how 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 many uh, Jewish people end up being doctors and lawyers, and how that actually happens. It's not just like like a cultural uh, sort of right. Your mom wants you to be a doctor. Thing. Right. It's not that. Right. There's actually a lot of other steps yeah. to it to, yeah. to get to that. Thing. Life is way more complex than people want to admit. Yeah. And you know, I, one thing I've learned in 52 years is. It's not all as cut and dry as you think. I mean, there's there's a lot of of uh, variables in the equation, and it's a fascinating journey. I mean, yeah. you know, part of me, if I never get the arts factory going, or maybe before we get the arts factory going, as a little, you know, uh, prelude to it, I'd love to just uh, get rid of everything again, hit the road, me and Paula with backpacks, travel through the world, and just talk to people and and capture their stories mm-hmm. and capture that experience and you know the rub is how do you how do you you know eat when you're doing that but you know i think you know part of it i have that extreme personality and and just to you know people the mythology of you know us selling everything we had and taking two teenage boys around the world and everything you know that sort of you know is interesting to a lot of people and uh, to us, it was just like life, you know, yeah. probably harder on the boys maybe than us at the time. But, you know, the thought of just doing that again, the two of us, is very appealing on certain levels. I would imagine. And and to even know now what we know versus what, I mean, I was in my 30s when we did that. Imagine in your 50s, just saying later. Well, I, you know, I was and, thinking about that as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, was what type of... Uh, brave mentality that took because for me even though we don't me and crystal don't have any children she has a good job which is basically our only tie i can make work anywhere right but there's something Mm -hmm. very very um scary or you know just like that 
unknown about getting up and moving to a foreign country yeah. as intense as India. Yeah. Or, you know, anywhere. Anywhere. Any other country. Right. Even going to London. Moving right. to London is an int- would be an intense right. uh, change of culture. Right. You know? Yeah, and something in one of those seeds in me is I am a, a, a sort of a visionary pioneer. I always have, we call it in our culture more entrepreneurial, but that, uh-huh. that has capitalistic kind right. of uh, undertones to it. But, you know, like when you take the DISC test, you know, the, that personality kind of test, uh-huh. mine is, goes, the D is, re- my D is actually out of the box. That's scary. I've had to really learn to manage that so I don't scare and intimidate people nonstop. <laughs> So I, I do this sort of dumb blonde surfer persona <laughs> as a cover. But my D is out of the box and my I, which is, you know, engaging with people is the next highest. And my S and my C, which is your administrative stuff, are down low. So it's just it's this diagonal slant. And you look in the book and that's the entrepreneur. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, it's the exact yeah. diagram except my D is out of the box. Yeah. And so that's how I'm wired for adventure, for expansion, for, you know, doing weird things. And so, you know, I guess in the perfect, perfect world, we'd love, it would be fun to hit the road for a couple years, just talking story with people all over the world. Yeah, and, and that's then, sort of what this podcast yeah. is about, really, is, is taking time to sit down and have people's conversations yeah. and hear people's stories and then learning from them. Because yeah. when, I, what was, when I first started this, I had been a few episodes in, and I don't know if you heard me talk about this yet or not, but I've talked about it on the podcast already, but I got... Um, a series of tapes from my grandma mm. who passed away in 2001 they're just like like the tapes that are like the little handheld recorder right. tapes you right. know sound wasn't very good and a, a woman had been interviewing her a friend of hers about um getting a lung transplant and what mm. that process is like so the goal at, at the time was to write a book about her and the whole thing so there is about eight hours wow. of my grandma being interviewed for christmas this year i went and I, since I knew how to use the new yep. program, the uh, the audio program, and I had one of those recorders, nice. and I had a cord that hooked from the recorder to my computer, nice. I was able to record all of them to a digital file, nice. so that our whole extended family could listen to them, too, because nice. the book never got made, and never, mm-hmm. nothing ever came of it. But so, uh, now, because I just happened to be doing this little podcast thing, these few steps that took place ahead mm-hmm. of time, I was able to put this whole story together for my family. Yeah. As a, as a way to connect back to our heritage, right. which for me was really important because I got to I got to almost communicate with my grandma mm-hmm. as an adult, right. which I didn't get to do as a child, right. as, a young, as a young adult or right. teen or whatever. It was always like child-grandma relationship. Right. But now I get to hear these things from her as an yeah. adult with this mature mind. Yeah. And it's so funny hearing so much stuff that's like, hey, that's me. I hear right. myself. Right. Which is super weird. I've painted both... My, my grandparents' portraits, too. And when I was painting those portraits, I was seeing all my cousins, all my wow. aunts and uncles and stuff in these things. I also, in the tapes, are most a bunch of my aunts, which mm-hmm. my mom's family is a large extended family, mm-hmm. seven, six sisters and, and one brother. Um, they also got interviewed. Wow. My uh, 16-year-old sister, at the, at the time, was right. 16 was at the recording, or 15, I hear her giving me this sort of mythological lesson, uh-huh. like these things that I've been espousing about religion and things. I hear my my sixteen year old sister basically giving me a mythology lesson. Wow, you know, ten years ago, like it's like a time machine. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, Paula's doing that. She's actually recording her mom. Uh, they did it with her dad before he passed on tape. 
but now you know the digital video camera and because some of their heritage is fascinating you know when you read about the boys great-grandparents being vaudeville performers that's my wife's mom's parents yeah you know yeah. and and to talk through that with her and imagine being able to do what you just described but all around the world like when we were in Nepal uh, living there one time we were down in the uh, the uh, what was it called the Kichwan jungle or something in southern Nepal and there were like wild rhinoceros and wild tigers and wild elephants and we had to sleep in this thing that was like 30 feet off the ground with this extended like balcony all around it so the tigers couldn't climb the poles and climb into where you were sleeping yeah and we would sit around the campfire just blazing like bonfire to keep away the wild animals at night before everyone went to bed and sing folk songs with nepalese and you know they wanted us to sing american folk songs and you realized how devoid our modern day culture is with any kind of connection like they have a connection that goes back you know hundreds of years and so the boys were singing things like uh we did the hokey pokey with them with all these nepalese and all of these old-timey songs mm -hmm. that you know we tried to connect with them and imagine being able to sit there at that campfire and actually have a conversation with one of these people where they come from what their story is and and be able to have that out on the internet for people to say wow this is a very uh diverse world you yeah. know I'd, I'd love to take like do a photo book of moms of the world because as you go around every country no matter how impoverished they are you see the love of a mother with their child which is so powerful sometimes it makes you weep it's always the same right yeah it's that same thing the same thread time, you know so yeah it's just we get different skin tones and different cultures exactly and all of a sudden we uh we separate yep and i think the most bigoted judgmental racist people are the most ignorant because they've never been exposed because it's easy to say us and them when them is just a concept or a perception or a statistic but when you're actually involved with other people's lives you you see more commonality than distinction that's what i've been finding with this podcast even just with you're the 21st person or you know like the 20th i've done a couple that weren't guests but uh all these same stories keep coming up yeah. and these same sort of ideas yeah. and you know the connections are there it's in it, the idea that we're that much different is, yeah it's really yeah we comical yeah we have some different worldviews here and there and but you know what we're all walking on the same kind of a journey yeah. and that that's the thing that i've just learned to embrace over you know since i've been really paying attention the last 33 years or so uh of just saying you know what that this journey, we're, we're compatriots in the journey, you know, and it's, it's radically altered my life, being able to embrace the journey from that perspective. So. All right, I think that's a good spot to end it. Cool. Feel good? Do you want to plug anything? <laughs> usually I, usually I plug stuff here. Yeah. I, don't go to jail or don't, you might see you. Well, I don't know. It keeps my company in business. <laughs> <laughs> You know, go 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 February sixth to the House of Blues, see the silent comedy. Dude, yeah, that's, that's a, a good thing that's to a, plug. That's a perfect plug. Yeah. All right, let's dap because I can't I yeah. can't shake hands right with on. my new tattoo. Live free, baby. All right, thank you very much for doing the show. I appreciate hey, it. Thanks.